Do not be alarmed. The sirens you are about to hear are not real. An ex-con with a long history of violent behavior, including stomping puppies to death and assaulting cops, was suspected of shooting his girlfriend's four-year-old son in the face with a semi-automatic rifle, killing him. Hey there. Welcome to my podcast, All Available Units Respond. I also have another podcast you can check out. It's called Tell Me a True Crime Story. There are 21 episodes on there for you to binge. Speaking of my other podcast, Tell Me a True Crime Story, this story was originally intended for that podcast, but because of the nature of the events that take place in this story, it was a good fit for this podcast too. The events that transpired on May 19th, 1998 that we will discuss required a massive response from many different law enforcement agencies and other emergency services. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcast and give it five stars on Spotify. Please follow or subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends and family about it. Thank you again for being here. Big hugs to all of you. Today's episode is called End of Watch, and this is part one. Part two is available now as well. Story starts in Tampa, Florida, and ends a little north of Tampa. Tampa is on the west or Gulf Coast of Florida on Tampa Bay. According to Tampa.gov, Tampa's port is now the seventh largest port in the United States. Four cruise lines sail in and out of Port Tampa Bay Carnival, Celebrity Cruises, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian Cruise Line. Tampa is Florida's third most populous city with nearly 400,000 residents. And according to a 2022 crime survey by the Major Cities Chiefs Association, Tampa is one of the safer large cities in the United States. Out of 59 major U.S. cities included in the survey, it ranked 14th overall lowest violent crime rate in 2022. In 1998, 30-year-old Hank Earl Carr, his girlfriend, 24-year-old Bernice Bowen, Bernice Bowen's 5-year-old daughter, Kayla, and her 4-year-old son, Joseph, who they called Joey, were living in an apartment in Tampa, Florida. The upstairs apartment was located at 709.5 East Crenshaw Street. And yes, you heard me correct. I had never heard that before, but it is... The address was actually 709 and a half East Crenshaw Street. Never heard that before. First time hearing that. That is, that was strange to me. Um, so by this time in 1998, um, they had been living in Tampa for about two years. So it's 30-year-old Hank Earl Carr, his girlfriend, 24-year-old Bernice Bowen, her five-year-old daughter, Kayla, and her four-year-old son, Joseph. They were all living together for about two years in Tampa by the time our story kind of kicks off here in 1998. So our story begins on Tuesday, May 19th. 
It was supposed to be a good day. Bernice Bowen took the day off from her job at Kmart so that she could rent a room at the Super 8 Motel and take her kids swimming at the pool there. But at approximately 9.30 a.m., her four-year-old son, Joey, sustained a gunshot wound to the face from a high-powered rifle. His mother, Bernice Bowen, and Bernice's boyfriend, Hank Earl Carr, took Joey to fire station number seven on Hannah Avenue, which was a few blocks away because they had no telephone at home. Bernice Bowen rode in the front seat with Hank Earl Carr instead of in the back seat with her gravely injured son. They left her daughter, five-year-old Kayla, with a neighbor. At the fire station, firefighters tried to resuscitate Joey, who was not breathing and had no pulse. Little Joey had succumbed to his grievous injury and died. When Hank Earl Carr realized that Joey was dead, he jumped into his car and left the fire station, even though officers who'd responded were ordering him to stop. According to Bernice and Hank Earl Carr, Joey had been dragging the loaded rifle behind him when it discharged and went off. But officers needed to investigate and find out if that was really how Joey had been shot. When Hank Earl Carr fled the fire department, he'd gone back to their apartment on East Crenshaw Street, and police soon caught up with him there. At about 10.30 a.m., as Hank Earl Carr was being questioned by detectives, he suddenly bolted and took off running. With police in pursuit, he ran through several nearby yards. Minutes later, into the chase and about a quarter of a mile from his apartment, Corporal Brian O'Connor spotted feet poking out from under bushes along Norfolk Street. Hank Earl Carr was apprehended and placed in the back of the detective's unmarked car, a green Ford Taurus. Tampa police spokesman Steve Cole told reporters at the time, quote, We were treating this as an accidental shooting, but then all of a sudden the guy just took off. That put a whole new perspective on our investigation. That's a little bit squirrely, end quote. Hank Earl Carr was taken to the police department to be questioned about the shooting. The assault rifle that had killed little Joey was placed in the trunk of the detective's car. According to the Tampa Police Department, Hank Earl Carr was not under arrest during his transport. Little Joey's mom, Bernice, was also taken to the police department, but separately. During questioning, Hank Earl Carr gave detectives an alias. He said he was Joseph Lee Bennett, which was the name of Little Joey's biological father, and he called Bernice Bowen his wife. He'd previously told Bernice to go along with this ruse, and she did. At some point, Hank Earl Carr's story changed, and on tape, he said that he'd accidentally shot Joey. He said he didn't know the gun was loaded when he'd pointed it at him. So, who was Hank Earl Carr, really? Let's go over a little bit of what we know about his background. Hank Earl Carr was born on January 31, 1968, to Gail Carr in Atlanta, Georgia. He was born with a disease called hyaline membrane syndrome, also called newborn respiratory distress syndrome. It's caused due to a lack of a foamy liquid called surfactant being present in the lungs of premature infants. In 1963, President and Mrs. Kennedy's newborn son, Patrick, died from this same thing, from hyaline membrane syndrome, before he was two days old. Back then, about 10,000 babies per year died from 
newborn respiratory distress syndrome. These days, it only claims the lives of about 700 premature babies per year. Hank Earl Carr overcame his bout with newborn respiratory distress syndrome, and of course his mother was relieved and thankful. Her firstborn, a baby girl, had died at birth. She'd been born with the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. Hank Earl Carr was an active kid that never crawled, just went straight to walking, and he walked early too. He started to read newspaper comics at age three. He loved the cartoon Yogi Bear. For you youngsters out there that don't know who Yogi Bear is, in the cartoon, Yogi Bear's constant companion was named Boo Boo. That's why Hank Earl Carr's family nicknamed him Boo. Throughout his childhood, Hank Earl Carr had severe asthma attacks. He was also restless at night. He was said to be a very energetic child, and he was difficult to handle. In response to this restlessness, his father, Harold Cox, would make Hank Earl Carr stand and face the wall for hours until he collapsed on the floor and fell asleep. His father also forced him and his half-brother to march in formation. When they misbehaved, they were locked in a bedroom. His father taught them how to take apart guns and clean them. Hank Earl Carr had mastered this by the age of two. His mom ended up leaving his dad, married a man named Don, and they moved to Bradenton, Florida. There, his second grade teacher suspected Hank Earl Carr had attention deficit disorder. She spoke with his mom about getting him evaluated for it, and his mom agreed that he should be tested. The results showed that he did indeed have attention deficit disorder. He started to take Ritalin at age 7 for his hyperactivity. The test he'd taken also revealed that his IQ was 133, a near-genius score. For reference, only 2% of the world's population has an IQ of 132 or above. In the late 1970s, the family moved to Barnesville, Georgia, because Carr's stepdad, Don, got a better paying job at a glass factory there. Hank Earl Carr was 10 years old at this time. He was small for his age, but tough. Folks in Barnesville, Georgia, remember Carr as being a scrapper, a kid always looking for a fight and always seeking attention. Five years later, in 1983, Hank Earl Carr's stepdad moved the family back to Florida, this time to Inglewood, a beach town about 30 miles south of Sarasota. Hank Earl Carr was 15 years old. He was taken off of Ritlin. He became hyper and tense and would pace around the house. He got in trouble with the law for drinking on the beach and breaking into a vending machine. Hank Earl Carr's mom didn't like the friends he hung out with. She saw them as a bad influence. She forbade him from seeing them, but he insisted. She said he could follow her rules or leave. Hank Earl Carr left and became homeless. He dropped out of high school at the beginning of 10th grade. He soon became friends with another homeless teen named Roger Lee Stables. They slept in abandoned cars. They brutally beat men up, knocked them out, and robbed them. Hank Earl Carr would knock people out with his elbows. He would end the fight by giving the victim a final kick to the head. In 1985, the two teens broke into a laundromat and stole money and a gun, and two months later, they broke into a man's home and beat him with a pipe. They were both arrested, and Hank Earl Carr, who was 17, was taken to a juvenile detention center. However, he refused to follow the rules and fought often, so he was transferred to the adult jail, 
then was sent to prison. He did 15 months in Appalachie Correctional Institution in the Florida Panhandle. He was released from prison in 1987 and was put on community control, an intense form of probation. His probation officer was Lisa White. His file from his prison stint was hundreds of pages, filled with write-ups for fighting, refusing to follow the rules, and for being defiant. Upon his release from prison, Hank Earl Carr went to live with his mom and stepdad in West Tampa. He got a $5 per hour job hanging aluminum siding, but was fired within a week for showing up late. His mom kicked him out of her house for coming home drunk and being rude. He became homeless again and started fighting again. He put a man in the hospital for a week. Hank Earl Carr had a great deal of anger. Lisa White, his probation officer, tried to work through the anger with him, but that didn't happen. He'd snap at her during his weekly visits with her. In 1988, when he was 20 years old, he went to prison for what was supposed to be a three-and-a-half-year term, but due to overcrowding, he was released after only six weeks. He reunited with an old girlfriend who was only 16 years old. Her name was Kathy Stevens, and together they moved to Griffin, Georgia for a fresh start. After only being together for a month, Kathy's parents drove up to Georgia from St. Petersburg, Florida, to pick up their daughter and take her back with them. This is because Hank Earl Carr had started to physically abuse her. Kathy Stevens gave birth to Hank Earl Carr's son a few months later. Hank Earl Carr soon made his way back to Tampa, Florida, where he was arrested again and again. He was again sentenced to a prison term, this time a two and a half year term, but was released only a year later. Just months after his prison release, he was again arrested for beating a man. He was sentenced to community control for that and saw his probation officer, Lisa White, in the probation office before he went AWOL. Hank Earl Carr then went to Marietta, Ohio. He'd gone there because he'd followed an old, old girlfriend up there. But soon he met and began dating someone else, Evelyn Sachs. They quickly moved in together. By this time, it was the end of 1992. In January of 1994, their daughter Tamara was born. In 1995, Evelyn discovered she was pregnant again, but this was after Hank Earl Carr had taken off with a 19-year-old high school dropout he'd met named Bernice Bowen. Bernice was a divorced mom of two kids. Evelyn ended up having a baby boy she named John Paul. Hank Earl Carr never saw his son. He'd fled Ohio with his new girlfriend, Bernice, after he'd been indicted there for drug trafficking. He'd only been in Ohio for three years, but during that time he'd managed to get charged with 22 crimes. He'd also been known in Marietta, Ohio for fighting. One time he bit off half of a man's ear. In July of 1995, Bernice Bowen sold her home in Ohio and bought Hank Earl Carr a Harley. Together, they went to Sturgis, South Dakota, to the massive Harley-Davidson annual bike rally. They dreamed about opening a motorcycle business of their own. In November of 1995, Hank Earl Carr got arrested in Sturgis after a fight and spent one day in jail. He bonded out of jail and fled the state of South Dakota. This is when they went to Tampa, Florida, and Hank Earl Carr took on the alias Joseph Lee Bennett. As I mentioned earlier, they'd been living in Tampa for about two years when little Joey was shot in the face. So, back to the story where we left off. On tape, 
Hank Earl Carr's story changed, and he said that he'd accidentally shot Joey. He said he didn't know the gun was loaded when he'd pointed it at him. So, sometime after 1 p.m., City of Tampa police detectives, 46-year-old Ricky Childers and 44-year-old Randy Bell, took Hank Earl Carr back to his apartment so that he could demonstrate what had happened earlier when little Joey was shot. Just before 2 p.m., after Hank Earl Carr's reenactment of how the shooting occurred at his apartment, the two detectives and Hank Earl Carr were on the way back to police headquarters. Still not aware of his real name or true identity, the detectives treated him as a grieving father and handcuffed him with his hands in front of him rather than behind his back. Unbeknownst to Detective Childers and Detective Bell, the man they thought was Joseph Lee Bennett, little Joey's father, was really Hank Earl Carr, Joey's mom's boyfriend and a convicted felon and fugitive. He was wanted in four states. He was a violent man who liked to fight, a man who beat women he dated. He also vowed never to go back to prison. The detectives were also unaware that the career criminal kept a handcuff key hidden on him at all times. While in the back seat during transport, Hank Earl Carr used that hidden handcuff key to free one of his hands. Detective Ricky Childers was driving, and as he exited I-275 South at Flora Brasca Avenue, Hank Earl Carr grabbed Detective Childers' 9mm Glock out of his left shoulder holster and shot him in the head. As Detective Randy Bell, who was in the front passenger seat, tried to dive over the seat to grab the gun from Hank Earl Carr, Hank Earl Carr shot him in the face. Thomas Wilson, a 60-year-old resident of Tampa Heights, lived near where Detectives Childers and Bell were shot and killed. He was behind his house barbecuing chicken when he heard a commotion, so he ran out front. His girlfriend pointed to the Ford Taurus sitting in the middle of the Florabraska Avenue exit ramp from I-275. Thomas Wilson ran over to check it out and saw the car's window glass splattered with blood and two men slouched in the front seat. The driver was leaning against his door and the passenger was wedged face down between the front seats. Thomas Wilson knew both men were dead. Tampa Police Department detectives Ricky Childers and Randy Bell weren't the only law enforcement officers that would die at the hands of Hank Earl Carr that day. And that is where we will leave off on part one of this episode. When he was first brought to the Tampa Police Department by uniformed officers for questioning, he was handcuffed behind his back as he should have been. But tape from a news camera clearly shows that at the station, he almost managed to wriggle free of one of the handcuffs. Detective Childers, later murdered, ordered him to stop playing around. Do you understand? Then, when he was taken back to his residence to reconstruct his version of the shooting, he attempted to run away and was found hiding in nearby bushes. After that, he was videotaped, being escorted to transportation by the two detectives he later murdered and a uniformed officer. These haunting scenes clearly show that at this point, he was handcuffed in front with no belly chain or other restraint. Thank <laughs> you.
No one saw the handcuff key Hank Earl Carr wore around his neck until it was too late. Detective Ricky Childers and his partner, Randy Bell, had Carr in custody in connection with the killing of a four-year-old boy. Carr claimed he accidentally shot his girlfriend's son. It's like a Chinese version of the AK-47. Just minutes after this unmarked police unit drove away, Carr would free himself, grab the officer's service revolver, and shoot both detectives to death. Part two is ready for you to listen to now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of All Available Units Respond. It would help me out a ton if you would write a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or give it a five-star rating on Spotify or anywhere else that you can review or rate podcast. And please tell your friends and family about this awesome new podcast that you found. Thank you for being here. I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Please join me again for the next episode. Big hugs to all of you, and I hope that you and your family are happy, healthy, and together forever. Bye-bye.